Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt from The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, my guest is Brett Stevens, a Pulitzer Prize-winning conservative journalist and opinion columnist for The New York Times. Brett and I may not agree on President Trump, but we do agree on many other topics. Today, we chatted about Pearl Harbor, COVID, fake news, or as you'll hear, he divides that into more precise categories, how people should consume news, Russia, China, Iran. We covered a lot of ground. I hope you find it interesting. Take a listen and share. My name is Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Delighted today to be here with Brett Stevens from The New York Times. Brett, I've long admired your work. I was fortunate to sit on a number of panels with you. Actually, we were introduced by Shmuley Botech from the World Values Network. So we sat together on a couple of panels there. Um, mostly, I, did, I agreed with what you said on so many topics, primarily discussing Israel and the Middle East. I'd say there's one difference of opinion. Uh, to put it mildly, you do not like President Trump, but that's okay. But you just have so much wisdom to share. So uh, I want to I want to start with a recent op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times um, with a gloomy question, which is: Are we going to go from this pandemic to a recession? Why don't you share, if you will, with my listeners, uh, you know, what you learned from writing that piece and where you think we're going? Well, what I learned from writing the piece is I don't think um, people are paying close enough attention to the more worrying signals uh, in the American economy, the global economy. Uh, but just uh, earlier today, um, the headline of the New York Times confirms my fears, which is that the consumer price index headline inflation um, is up uh, 7%, which is the highest it has been in, in, in 40 uh, years. And uh, inflation, once unleashed, is very, very difficult to uh, get under control without taking the sorts of measures, um, jacking up interest rates that historically have a way of sending the broader economy uh, into recession. That was our experience with uh, Paul Volcker. Uh, when he became chairman of the Fed, and it might be our experience again. The other thing that really worries me, Jason, is just the asset price inflation that the country has experienced in the last decade, since all of the rounds of quantitative easing by the Ben Bernanke Fed after the financial crisis. People haven't, I think, paid sufficiently close attention to the way in which not consumer prices, but asset prices have become massively inflated just across the board uh, in a way that I think has led to all kinds of speculative bubbles. There are valuations on Wall Street that are hard to make sense of, except as the function of a kind of a bubble economy. And bubbles have a way of being pricked. And when they, when they are pricked, a lot of people lose a lot of money, jobs are lost, um, and the economy suffers. So 
Maybe it was too gloomy a prediction. I'm not an economist. I should stress that. I'm just a commentator. But uh, I do try to be attentive to history and, and um, uh, past um, periods of irrational exuberance. And I think we're living in one now. So, Brett, you've also said uh, President Biden should not run again. And you added on something really interesting and important, which is not only should he not run again, but he should telegraph that he won't be running again. Walk us through that thought process. Well, unfortunately, I think there is an understanding or presumption right now that Mr. Biden will not run for re-election. He would be 82 years old. He is, by the admission of many, um, many people who know him, they will say things like he's, he may have lost a step. I'm not going to go any further than that. It's not my business to speculate about his health. But uh, age is a legitimate factor in thinking about the, um, the, the fitness of people to serve as uh, presidents. It was asked during President Trump's administration. It was asked during the Reagan administration. But the fact that he won't say that he's not running is sucking up the oxygen, I think, within the Democratic Party. There are at least three members uh, of the cabinet, or at least advisors to uh, uh, President Biden, who uh, would be strong contenders. I think of someone like uh, Gina Raimondo, the, uh, the Commerce Secretary, who may yet, uh, if I were to place a modest bet, yet be Treasury Secretary in a Biden administration, would be a very strong contender. Mitch Landrieu, the former very dynamic uh, mayor of New Orleans, uh, now the infrastructure czar would be another strong contender. Everyone in the Democratic field is playing a game of make-believe that Biden is the uh, presumptive nominee. And I think that's damaging uh, the Democratic Party. It's damaging the, uh, political, uh, the political process. Um, and getting back to something you said earlier, it is a standing invitation to um, President Trump to uh, jump back into the race, which is something that I, as a um, erstwhile Republican and current conservative, would rather not see. So we have deep, deep divisions in this country. No secret, right? Um, I think people are tired of it. I think it's terrible for the country. You've been in this business much longer than me. Is this something you've seen before, or have we sort of um, jumped to a level that you've never seen? Well, look, um, you have to, I, I always like, or I'm amused by people talking about the halcyon era of bipartisan uh, comedy. And you think, well, when was that? When, uh, when uh, President Bush Jr. was in charge? No, it was pretty ferocious. Clinton, well, we had the Monica saga impeachment. Reagan, uh, just go back to every presidency and there's been severe partisanship. But I think this era is a little different in, in a few uh, respects. Um, the most salient of them, Jason, is that we are now in the world of social media presidencies. Um, your former boss, in many ways, uh, pioneered the social media presidency with his uh, activity on Twitter. Um, but social media has a way of, I think, uh, poisoning, sharpening divides, um, sharpening rhetoric, uh, and uh, poisoning the waters of a sense of common citizenship. I mean, it really, it does have a way, Twitter certainly has a way of bringing out the worst uh, of, of even the most thoughtful uh, people who are users of it. 
funnily enough, as someone has pointed out, social media and drugs are two uh, indulgences where people uh, use them, like you're a social media user just as you're a drug user. Um, so I think that has, in a sense, accelerated and made more vivid, more obvious, more constant the partisan and ideological division. I will say um, that I think there is a secret hunger out there for a more civil form of discourse. And I have only anecdotal evidence for this, but I'll, I'll share it with you. I, I do this thing every week in the New York Times called The Conversation with Gail Collins. Uh, Gail, my esteemed colleague, is uh, very much uh, an old school liberal. I'm, I'm pretty conservative. We have a conversation which uh, is posted every week um, and uh, where we air disagreements, uh, occasionally agreements too. And if you look for the conversation on social media, it's nowhere. It, it barely exists. Uh, why? Maybe because our tone is civil, because we genuinely like each other as human beings, because we are uh, trying to have a conversation, not an argument. We're, 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 not, we're not trying to slam the other person down. And it turns out it's an extraordinarily popular feature in the New York Times, which I think I mean, again, I'm, I'm talking anecdote, not data, but the anecdote tells me that people really are hungry for a sense of civility. They're hungry for disagreements that are healthy, uh, not toxic. So it's interesting you mentioned that column. I came across it for the first time in doing my research for this podcast. I read you um, pretty religiously. I read Gail. I'll admit I do read the New York Times, even though I disagree with it sometimes. Although I think they were quite fair to me in my position at the White House. Um, I thought it was a great, great piece. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think it is what's missing from society. One of the reasons I started The Diplomat also, by the way. How do you think we can get more and more people to do what you and Gail are doing so that we don't run away from the conflicts and the divisions, but rather talk respectfully and understand we may not end up agreeing, but we may bridge, we may build bridges and we walk away still as uh, colleagues and friends? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. You have to create structured platforms for it. Uh, and I, I think one of the great things about the Times is that it provided us with just this kind of uh, structure. Um, you also have to find the right uh, interlocutors. Uh, more and more people think that um, politics is, has always got to be a blood sport and that we have nothing to learn from our uh, partisan uh, adversaries. I find I have a lot to learn from my partisan adversaries, particularly when I disagree with them, not uh, much less so when, when I agree with them. We have a media world, Jason, in which ideological identity is increasingly indistinguishable from brand identity. So that if you are, uh, you know, liberal, it's MSNBC all the time, or conservative, it's Fox News uh, um, all the time. And I think that some of the media organizations have kind of failed in a, in a certain kind of fiduciary responsibility to force their readers to confront opposing views. You know, when Sean Hannity first arrived at Fox News, it was Hannity and uh, the late, uh, much missed Alan Combs. Well, then it just became Hannity. Uh, and uh, I long for a world in which the 
dissenting uh, Alan Colmeses are regular presences, even if it means that people will tear their hair out or you know, throw things at their television screens. It's really important that we do that. I don't believe, I, I'm not in favor of a formal fairness doctrine because I think there are First Amendment issues there which, which concern me. But I do think that media organizations have this fiduciary responsibility to um, offer a broader set of views, even if they do have, even if they do lean identifiably one way or another. It's no, it's no secret that the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, where I worked for many years, is right of center. But they make they make space for Bill Galston, who's a really important voice. And the New York Times, I think, has done a good job of uh, also consistently making space for right of center voices in a broadly left of center platform. So important point, and I want to get to then the concept of consuming news, how we consume news today. You're a dad, I'm a dad. What do you tell young adults today, teenagers, even adults really, because this would apply to anybody, how they should properly consume news so that they don't just get the bias of the station or channel or newspaper they're listening to, watching, reading, but they really understand as broad a possible a spectrum of what's truly going on? Another wonderful question. And, um, you know, I've always urged uh, my kids to um, read opposing voices to understand just how important it is to the quality of thinking, to at least understand the argument of the other side, which is never as stupid or as dismissible as uh, we, would, we would want it or th- imagine it uh, to be. I think the other important thing is you need um, you need to surround your news reading with a broader architecture of facts, a broader architecture of um, understanding. You know, what in a past job I used to have the responsibility of hiring um, interns for a prestigious internship program, and I often found that a lot of these, a lot of the uh, college seniors I was interviewing were, were really smart in that they clearly had high uh, IQs, but their minds were like you know, medieval maps where the, the known world sort of ended and there was a kind of a there be dragons side of their brains where they just, they didn't know what had happened, uh, important aspects of the past um, that were essential to a uh, mature understanding of the present. And uh, the result was a kind of impoverishment. So typically when I hired my interns, I actually required all of them to read a very lengthy history of the 20th century, Paul Johnson's uh, book, Modern Times, just to have an 800 page acquaintance with what happened since 1919 in the world and what shaped, what shaped the world uh, in, in which we live. And I think that's important, that's important advice. It brings something, it, it means the newsreader the young newsreader brings more to the table than just uh, the words that are before him. The final point I would say, Jason, is uh, it's really important to keep an eye out for countervailing data, the countervailing point of data. You know, if um, I grew up in the 1980s when the whole world was convinced, it seemed, that Japan was going to be the world's number one economy. In fact, there was a book written by a famous Harvard uh, professor, uh, Ezra Vogel, titled Japan is Number One. And uh, you, I, 
you're you're more than old enough to remember this too. This this belief that Japan had somehow unlocked the secret of an uber successful economy. Well, if you had spent a little time thinking, uh, yeah, maybe, but um, these real estate valuations in Tokyo make no sense, and it sounds like a real estate bubble to me. You would have been a better predictor of the then future of Japan, Japan of the 1990s through the present, which has been an era of stagnation for the country. Or if you had looked at demographic trends in the fall and demographic, uh, in, in, in the, the changing nature of Japan's population, you would have been able to imagine that it wasn't going to be as dynamic an economy in the beginning of the 21st century as it had been in the second, uh, I guess, the, the, the latter half of the 20th. So look for those countervailing points of data. Look at something that, uh, look, at, look at the information that's outside of the consensus uh, before you sort of swallow whole uh, what the consensus has to say. You mentioned two things in your last answer that I want to use as a jumping off point to my next question. Uh, one is what shaped the world and the other one is Japan. We just commemorated the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm actually heading to Hawaii with my kids and my wife soon, and we're going to go to Pearl Harbor for me to end them for the first time. And you wrote a piece recently in the Times about this. What is the lesson for us today to learn from that? Because some people think it's not relevant. Your piece suggests it's extremely relevant. What, what should people take from that, from the Pearl Harbor lesson? I'll answer that in a second, but just one brief note with respect to the, the, the prior question. Um, shortly after uh, COVID had us all locked down in the uh, beginning of the spring of 2020, um, a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Gary uh, Kasparov, the, the chess player, called me up and he said, you know, it's just unbelievable to think that this was a natural virus and had nothing to do with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And at the time, the mainstream media was busy dismissing it as a completely crazy conspiracy theory. And here was Gary saying, no, 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 take it from me. I know what these repressive regimes are like. And he also, there were several instances during the Soviet period where there were um, uh, outbreaks of virulent diseases due to misbegotten lab work. Well, I made the mistake of not taking Gary as seriously as I should. I mean, he's only the world's uh, greatest uh, history's greatest chess player. Why should I have taken a guy like that seriously? But sure enough, Gary, with his sense of history, with his sense of the way in which communist uh, regimes uh, operate, and with a kind of nose for uh, improbable, uh, improbable things like the emergence of this pandemic, was probably much closer to the mark by sheer instinct in March of 2020 than most of the world was all the way up until it finally became uh, accepted as a viable and, and perhaps even probable hypothesis uh, about a year later. So uh, that was a case in which I should have been listening more attentively to that countervailing point of data known as Gary Kasparov's uh, brain. Now, to your question about Pearl Harbor, you know, the era that preceded Pearl Harbor was an era in which um, uh, three, principally three, or really maybe four dictatorships with um, revanchist instincts, impulses to change the world order, were on the march and were not being uh, credibly opposed by what 
uh, was then the free world uh, led by France, Great Britain, and to a certain extent, uh, the United States. And the result was uh, the catastrophe of um, uh, Pearl Harbor um, and the disaster uh, and challenge of uh, the Second World War. And I titled that column uh, uh, The Capacity for Surprise, um, which had two meanings in, in, in my mind. Uh, one was we should cultivate a capacity to imagine that we could be in for a world of surprises, that there are um, geopolitical events which may be uh, right around the corner for, uh, uh, from us that uh, resemble what happened to us on December 7th, 1941, uh, when in hindsight it was easy to see an attack was coming. Um, but at the time, uh, the battleships were lined up like uh, uh, sitting ducks. The second sense in which I meant a capacity for surprise is our, I think, diminished ability, capability, to inflict surprises of our own. Um, the free world is uh, losing the kind of sense of geopolitical initiative to um, change the equation in a way that uh, disfavors the, the new dictatorships of China, Iran, and uh, Russia. Not so new dictatorships, but you know the, the dictatorships of our own day. Uh, and that's, that's another serious problem that we face, that our own ability to inflict surprises on autocratic enemies. I don't mean military attacks. I mean changes in the geopolitical equation. That has, that has waned. The last time the United States really did that in a big way was with Henry Kissinger's visit to, to China in 1971. But there's been relatively little of that. And I think that's a, that's a long-term problem for us. And you mentioned COVID. So nobody, I think, predicted Omicron. Nobody predicted we'd still be stuck in this. A uh, lot of people's predictions, of course, were wrong. What, what's your message to people about COVID and how people should think about it in the near future, given that we're, you know, two years into this already? Well, as my mother continually reminds me, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not uh, an MD. So I'm offering you uh, a, a very admittedly um, uh, unprofessional, uh, non-expert opinion. I don't think Omicron was not predicted, by the way. In that, in the sense, is uh, I, long before Omicron, we were being told that um, at some point the pandemic wouldn't go away; it would become endemic, and it becomes endemic as viruses mutate to become uh, more survivable. They become more survivable uh, by killing fewer of their hosts, right? Um, by by becoming less virulent. Uh, not more. I mean, it's quite possible that what we call the common cold today was once a much more severe virus that simply mutated, or a series of viruses that simply mutated in a way that they became uh, endemic part features of life. My, my own feeling is we have to act as if Omicron is fundamentally distinct and different from past variants. In fact, I think it's even a mistake to refer to it in common parlance as COVID. Uh, at least anecdotally, Omicron uh, 
does not seem to be leading to the hospitalization levels that we saw with, say, the Delta variant or the, the, the initial variant. It's not leading to the death rates. 51% uh, last I checked of so-called COVID hospitalizations in the New York City area are really not COVID hospitalizations. They're hospitalizations with, not because of COVID. Um, and uh, right now, three out of five of my immediate family members have this thing, and they're doing just fine. They are, if, if, if they had been struck by this three years ago and none of us had heard of COVID, I would, I would call it you know, possibly a strep throat or a bad cold. Um, but the idea that we can remain a society in a permanent state of quasi-lockdown or quasi-national emergency um, against uh, a virus that no longer poses the kind of severe risk of widespread death that the first few variants of the virus posed, I think it's just untenable. Um, tests, as far as I can tell, aren't picking it up in time. Contact tracing is useless against something that is so rapidly transmissible. Uh, my wife was boosted three weeks before she got uh, she got her um, uh, she got uh, sick with uh, Omicron. So the boosters are of questionable um, efficacy. Uh, let's let's rethink the way we are uh, approaching Omicron and perhaps. I mean, I, I, we've had so many nasty surprises that I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but perhaps we need to start thinking about this as something that we as a species are just going to live with for a very, very long time. And like past um, episodes of this, we will probably be fine as a species. Um, we, will manage to, we will manage to develop therapeutics and different versions of the vaccine that will deal with it. and life. Uh, has to go on and we have to get back to normal because the cumulative effects of lockdowns, school closures, social distancing are becoming um, a public health emergency of their own. Let's talk a little politics. We have two political parties that to me, and again, you've been in this business much longer than me, but to me seem vastly different than they used to be. Where do you see the future of each of these two parties, the near future and, and the distant future? Well, uh, I mean, I, I rue what both what the parties have become, because to me, uh, the Republican Party is too much of a cult of personality, not a vehicle for the kinds of conservative ideas I grew up with. Um, uh, and the Democratic Party has now... Um, been largely captured by a progressive, and I use the word progressive in quotation marks because I think it's the opposite of progressive. Advocating socialism is a 19th century idea, not a 21st century idea. Advocating the constant use of racial identities is another 19th century idea. It should not be a 21st century idea. But the parties have moved uh, too far in the direction of their fringes, not in the direction of their uh, center. And I'm not honestly sure what is going to uh, recenter them. After the November election, when uh, Glenn Youngkin won in uh, Virginia, uh, and you had other reversals of uh, progressive initiatives throughout the country, there seemed to be a moment when Democrats started to think that wokeness, to use the, the common word, uh, that wokeness wasn't serving them well. But President Biden keeps 
campaigning uh, from the left, not from the center, which I just think is, you know, as, as someone once said, worse than a crime, it's a mistake. It's political malpractice. And I think the Republican Party needs to move on from Donald Trump. Um, to me, the perpetuation of the myth, the lie, the fantasy that he uh, was the real winner of the 2020 election is shameful. Uh, Republicans owe it to themselves to distance, to, 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 to make a sharp uh, break from that. You can take the view that aspects of the Trump presidency were successful, but I think it's very hard to then say that it is kosher to argue that um, the election uh, was, uh, was stolen, was, was, was rigged against him. I think that introduces a real poison into the United States. And you can say, and I've heard the argument, and I almost anticipate someone say, well, Hillary did it or Stacey Abrams did it, and you're right, except that we condemned them then, and so we should condemn President Trump for what he's up to now. I think we need, one of the reasons why, unlike some other never-Trumpers, I remain, I think, ideologically pretty conservative, is that I, I really believe in my bones, Jason, that every healthy society needs a healthy conservative party. And a healthy conservative party is one that understands the importance of tradition, one that understands the importance of casting a skeptical eye on every newfangled uh, idea, one that understands um, uh, the value of religion and morality, and yet remains nested in a broad set of identifiably liberal values and persuasions when it comes to free speech, when it comes to the rule of law, when it comes to um, the whole architecture of a uh, liberal society, liberal in the old fashioned John Stuart Mill sense of the word. And right now, I don't think we have it. Uh, so, I mean, this is pompous to say, but I kind of view it as my personal mission to espouse a form of conservatism which belongs in the broad, liberal, enlightened worldview that I think is the um, last best hope of earth, to quote uh, a former Republican politician. You used the phrase, cast a, a skeptical eye. So I want to turn to the concept of fake news for a few minutes. Um, I don't know who coined the term. I know President Trump used that phrase. I heard it a lot when I was at the White House. On my file, Truth be told, I was generally very fortunate. I didn't have to deal with a lot of fake news. But is it real, and how can people spot it? Which is a little bit of a different question than I asked earlier in terms of advice on how to learn more and become educated about the news. Well, I think you have to be a little more precise. Um, I think there is fake news. I think there is false news. And there is slanted news. Fake news in my book uh, is news that is written with the knowledge that it is fake, uh, with the knowledge that I am uh, going to put out a deliberate piece of misinformation, knowing full well that it is misinformation. Um, that's different from false news, which is news that just is wrong, right? It's the difference between a lie, which is intentional, and a misstatement of fact, which is often uh, not intentional. You know, uh, if I ask my kid when, you know, well, my kids know these facts, but if I ask a child, 
you know, when, when did Lincoln become president? And they say 1840, they're not lying. They just don't know the answer, right? So this is, this is a distinction that we're at the risk, that, that we're at risk of, of, of losing. And there are clear purveyors of fake news, whether it's Russian disinformatia or characters like Alex Jones, you know, who are, who are peddling obvious BS, right? And false news, where reporters uh, doing their best, maybe not doing their best, just get it wrong. There's a lot of false news there because um, of the way in which the news business works. And then there's this third uh, aspect, which is, I think, the most common, which is slanted news. It is perfectly possible to tell stories that are accurate in their details, but ultimately misleading in the picture uh, they paint, right? I always used to say this, you can go to almost any place in the world, and if you look hard enough, you'll find the story you're looking for. Uh, since you and I have the Middle East in common, you want to go to um, uh, the West Bank and find uh, Israeli settlers behaving horribly, you will find them. I guarantee you, you will find them, right? And you can write a whole story, you can write uh, a succession of stories of uh, West Bank settlers uh, uh, mistreating their Palestinian uh, neighbors. Uh, you could also do the opposite, which is find nothing but horror stories about Palestinians uh, 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 behaving uh, very, very badly. That's accurate, but it's not actually truthful because it doesn't provide you with something like a balanced, thoughtful, complex picture of what is happening in a contentious corner of the world. And I bring my own, by the way, I bring my own biases to that story. I try to be uh, alert to them, but I think it's the job of responsible journalism to try to apply a sufficient number of filters so that you are weeding out the obvious bias. There are ways of doing it. Have you asked someone from the other side? Have you quoted them extensively? Have you quoted them fairly? Um, and there are more subtle ways of inserting uh, slants or bias into news stories. Typically, who gets the last word in a given story, what we call the kicker, uh, is, is usually a tip-off to, uh, uh, to a certain kind of slant. So um, right now, the media landscape, I think, is, is um, well, I think it's a, it's a very troubled one because, uh, in part, allegations of fake news have made parts of the mainstream media uh, very defensive. It's also made them uh, actually blinder to their own prejudices rather than more uh, awake to them. I think if President Trump had actually been more precise in his use of in his accusations against the media, they would have had more of an effect. But because he, he usually had a kind of blunderbuss approach to the issue, a lot of people said, well, this guy is full of baloney and we are uh, agents or merchants of truth and virtue and, and, and righteousness. The media has a big problem now, if I can uh, dilate just a moment further, in that we've become a, in my view, a frighteningly self-congratulatory enterprise. And we would do well to be a little bit less self-congratulatory. And again, Trump made it easy for us because the, you know, when someone calls you the enemy of the people, right, uh, or the enemy of the American people, you feel like you are uh, virtue incorporated standing up against a kind of 
a, a demagogue and uh, a demagogue and a bully. But uh, we ought to be a lot more bringing a lot more attention to the ways in which the mainstream media doesn't fake the news but slants the news. And I think we need to be more forthcoming when we do get things wrong about owning up. Uh, in a real way to the mistakes, not just the mistakes that we find in some ways uh, ideologically convenient. Anyway, it's a large topic, as you can see, and I, I'm going on too long. Let's step into the Oval Office, so to speak, for a few minutes. Yes, something you've done more often than I. <laughs> You're sitting in front of President Biden. There's three main topics besides COVID-19 or Omicron that I think he could benefit from some advice from you. Let's start with the first one. China, what do you tell them? Well, I think uh, China is looking very carefully at the way the United States uh, exited Afghanistan, which was a fiasco um, and a humiliation. And it's looking very carefully at the way in which it is responding to Russian provocation in Ukraine. Uh, and it is taking this as signals, as cues for its own um, uh, strategy of aggression against Taiwan in the South China Sea and against some of its other uh, neighbors. So um, the world, we, we it's been a long time since we've lived in a world where you can imagine that a, uh, um, a uh, fiasco in the Middle East isn't going to haunt you uh, in Eastern Europe or in, in the Far East uh, uh, of, of Asia. I think with, the, with China, it's, it's a few things. We need accountability, real accountability on um, the sources of the coronavirus. And I think this is a button that President Biden should, should press repeatedly. If the Chinese want to stonewall, let them stonewall, but, but put them on notice that we have not uh, given up, uh, we've not closed uh, this particular file. I think we need to be a lot more forthcoming in terms of our commitments to Taiwan. I know they're governed by the Taiwan Relations Act, but to the extent that the United States can make clear that uh, we will not sit still for uh, further strategy against, of aggression against Taiwan, I think that's, that's very healthy. I think we have to stand up for human rights in China. We shouldn't let, let go of the fact that China abrogated the Sino-British Agreement of 1984 and that what it's doing in, in Hong Kong is a, a violation of its international treaty organizations. And I think there's a fifth and um, secret weapon that the United States has vis-a-vis -vis China, which is our commitment to a strategy of human rights and also rights of uh, religious conscience. Uh, uh, I, I predict that in 30 or 40 years time, uh, the most important social factor in China will be the rise of Christianity in China. Uh, and it's happening now in a, a modest way, which is to say tens of millions of people. But uh, regimes that deny the right of conscience over generations, I think are fundamentally unsustainable. Uh, and we do very little for the sake of religious freedom in China. We ought to be doing not just for the Uyghurs, most certainly for the Uyghurs, but not just for the Uyghurs. We also ought to be pressing this point for uh, Chinese Christians, for the Falun Gong, for everyone who wants to assert a, a right of conscience that is above, over and above uh, the duties they owe to politics. Second topic you touched upon, let's talk Russia. What do you tell them about Russia, what they're doing now with Ukraine, NATO, and so forth? Well, 
I think what Russia is doing with Ukraine is trying to break the back of NATO. Um, uh, and the fact that Ukraine is not in NATO, that it has been kind of put, given a sort of arm's length treatment by uh, NATO, doesn't change the fact that um, a, a, uh, um, an evolution in this crisis in which Russia, say, takes a piece of uh, Ukraine, the United States responds with sanctions on Russia's financial uh, architecture, and Russia responds with sanctions by cutting off gas supplies to Europe, is just the very sort of thing that could cause a fundamental rupture in transatlantic relations. Because unfortunately, our European partners have hostaged themselves to Russian, uh, Russian gas. So what we should be doing in Ukraine is number one, at least injecting in Russia's mind the possibility that they may face stiffer resistance in Ukraine um, than they might otherwise have. We should have something akin to the 1973 U.S. airlift to Israel, but going to Kiev rather than to, to Lod uh, Airport. We should be supplying Ukrainians with sniper rifles. We should be supplying them with anti-tank munitions, anti-helicopter munitions, the sort of munitions that could inflict just enough damage on the Russian army to make Putin think twice about an invasion. The second thing we need to do is I think we need to move troops in a large way to NATO's eastern front, not just Poland uh, and its border with the Russian uh, enclave of or exclave of Kaliningrad, but throughout the Baltic states. Russia needs to know that the result of an invasion is going to be a stronger NATO, not, uh, uh, not a, uh, a, a weaker NATO. And the final thing is we should not be parlaying with the Russians. We should not give them the impression that there are diplomatic concessions to be reaped by threatening the destruction of uh, one of their, one of their uh, neighbors. And last topic for President Biden, if you will, and last question. Um, Iran, the anti-flux, yeah. what, what do we do? Well, the one thing we should not do is re-enter into a weakened JCPOA, um, which uh, uh, gives Iran the best of both worlds, uh, um, access to um, financial resources that they've been deprived of these last uh, six years or so, um, uh, and the promise of eventually having not just a full-scale nuclear um, uh, nuclear industrial complex, but a legal one too, um, which was what the chief sin of the JCPA, uh, JCPOA was that it, it, it rendered kosher um, uh, an industry that Iran should, should not be allowed uh, by virtue of its, of its behavior, uh, should not be, be allowed uh, to have. So again, I'm very skeptical about whatever Rob Malley is cooking up uh, in um, uh, in Europe with uh, his Iranian uh, interlocutors. Um, I, think a, I think what we ought to be doing is ratcheting up sanctions and talking up the possibility that when we said we will not allow Iran to get a bomb, we mean it. Um, and that is not military action, but it is the credible threat of military action. And what we have failed to do, this administration has failed to do, is provide that credible, uh, that credible threat. So again, I'm not advocating, I wanna be clear to people listening to this, I'm not advocating um, war. I'm advocating a posture in which credible threats of military action lead to diplomatic outcomes that are far more favorable to us than to our adversaries.
Brad Stevens, thank you so much for joining me on The Diplomat. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm honored to be on your show, Jason. Thank you. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt from The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Brett Stevens, Pulitzer Prize-winning conservative journalist and opinion columnist for The New York Times. I do read The New York Times, even though I don't agree with some of their views. I think it's important, and Brett said this in our talk today, it is important. We really want to become educated about what's happening in the world to read and consume all sorts of news media in order to try to get a better understanding of what is actually happening. We did cover a lot of ground, Russia, China, Iran, how to consume news, the topic of fake news, and I thought Brett's take on that and how he is trying to be more precise with those labels that he mentioned in our talk were really important and very interesting. Pearl Harbor, COVID, and more. If you liked what you heard, if you found it interesting or informative, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We had a great roster of guests in 2021. Do share them. Do go back and listen to ones you may have missed. Do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And finally, do go to Amazon, please, and pre-order my upcoming book, In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East. If you're interested in the Middle East, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, this is the book for you. If you want to learn more about the White House and our policies in the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Abraham Accords, go to Amazon.com and you'll find the book and pre-order it. I look forward to catching you next time. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.